0: Welcome to Writers Talking, the podcast where we take writers and readers behind the scenes, sharing the stories within the stories. No scripts, no filters, and no holds barred as we talk about what really happens for writers as they write, edit, publish, and promote their work. Hi, I'm Anjanette Fennell, agent, editor, and writerly mentor who's worked with hundreds of writers to break through their creative challenges to uncover the stories they feel compelled to share. Now, let's get talking. Steph Vizard is an Australian writer and lawyer. After studying literature at Oxford University, she worked in publishing in London. Her debut romantic comedy, The Love Contract, won the 2022 HarperCollins Banjo Prize. She's a connoisseur of salt and vinegar chips and lives with her family in Melbourne very happy to reschedule. As I was saying before we were recording, this is integral to your book too, which was a really, really fun, like I really enjoyed your book. And it was, it's not a, a bad thing to say a quick and easy read. Of course, it was an award winner. So can you tell us a little bit about your background before you got to writing and how you decided to write this particular book?
1: Yeah, of course. So, I mean, I've loved reading forever and particularly rom-coms. They were the first love of my life. And I did my undergrad degree in English literature. So spent a good couple of years just reading and reading. Um, An excuse. Yeah, exactly. Legitimized reading. And then I was working in London and I did a creative writing course. And that was the first time I'd sort of, you know, been a bit focused Focused about learning to write. And I really enjoyed it and sort of got an insight into how publishing as an industry worked and Mm. what, you know, might lie ahead if, you know, everything fell into place. And then I was in my early twenties then, and then all the things happened that (laughs) happen often in your twenties. So, you know, I uh, went and did a grad degree and I fell in love and I moved countries, and I started work and all the things and sort of this kind of, you know, focus on writing sort of fell a little bit by the wayside. And then I had my daughter. My first daughter and I was on maternity leave, and I'd had this idea for a story sort of percolating in my mind. And then she was, I think, about four months old, and I opened my computer and I just started writing. And I oh. think, it, I think it was a combination of realizing that I now had a daughter and wanted to show her that you should really shoot for your dreams, you know, even even if they don't pan out, you should at least have a crack at them, right? And then also I had a lot to say at that time. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the big parts of the book is talking about being a parent and, Mm -hmm. you know, being a working parent in your 30s and trying to navigate that. And I had a lot to say about that um, Mm. because I was, So I think that was sort of the journey up to, up to really writing this story.
0: So we're in, when we're recording, we're in the middle of, we're not quite to the middle, but we're in NaNoWriMo for a lot of people. Was there a particular time of year, like your daughter was a few months old, which by the way, just flagging for anyone who thinks at any point, and I've worked with lots of people who have said things like, Oh, I'm pregnant. I'm just going to (laughs) write, the book real quick. And then when the baby's born, then I'll do the editing. Like I'm going to have all this time. I'm going to have all this time to do it. So how did that work out practically? Because that's still a pretty intense time. At about four months. And
1: the last, totally. And the last thing I want to do is make people feel bad or that that is what they should be doing on parental leave. (laughs) Because parental leave is a strange beast where you think Mm. you're going to have all this time and you have less time than you've ever had, ever, and less sleep. I think it was a few things, which a a big one being Melbourne's many lockdowns, too. So I, a lot of the things that provide the infrastructure of parental leave just weren't available, you know, like Mm. parents' groups and Classes and leaving the house. <laughs> so, in a way, I think I had to build myself some structure and I think an escape for me to sort of yeah. go into. So, I wrote during her two naps every day. I would just ignore all the things I was meant to be doing and run to my computer. And it became this sort of happy, safe place I could go during a really difficult period. And I, I think too, it was, it gave me a real focus. I mean, I, I was doing an online writing course at the same time. And And I think that having sort of that project that was just still mine and and a space where I was learning, you know, and trying to build on a craft at a time when my identity in life was changing so much for me was really helpful. But obviously, everyone should do what works for them.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think it's hard to be prescriptive. And one of the reasons for the podcast as well is sharing these real stories about the things we discover that work for us and the ways that. Maybe it's different than what we expected based on other writers. You know, yeah, I think yeah. we're all searching for our best approach. And often we look outside and say, oh, it's this way or that way. Like I said, NaNoWriMo for for lots of reasons works for people, but I do still think that many people might go into it with a misconception about what they will get out of it, mm, right? And like at the end of four weeks, totally. not only word count, if you can hit the word count, but what it's going to look like, what the actual words that you've got so far are going to look like. Actually, that makes me think after all of that experience, so you were in writing, what, as far as career I'm pretty sure I would have read it in the bio, but were you in
1: law? Were you practicing? Yes, yeah. okay. yeah, so I'm a practicing lawyer. I'm actually on parental leave again at <laughs> the moment. Um, but yeah, I've worked in corporate law, you know, and in my legal side of the career and, and had a really good time doing that. So Okay. Yeah.
0: But so then you were having this break but i would assume too especially in law like you're putting together briefs and things the turnaround yeah. time on writing something even if it's a brief and or technical writing someone's doing and then presenting it in some form or fashion mm. is a much shorter turnaround time than totally. say writing like a full yeah. length novel
1: yeah yeah no and 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 the thing with law is that often the the magic component is taking something mm that can be quite complex and trying to make it really easy and quick for people to understand and get their heads around. Mm -hmm. So there is a lot of writing and communication involved. And I think the other thing that law teaches you is that you can go out and work out how to do something because a lot of the time that's the job. And so I think I probably approach writing a little bit (laughs) with that mind frame of, you know, finding if I didn't know how to do something or if I reached a roadblock, I'd look to craft books or, you know, oh, take amazing. a course or, you know, and I think that and maybe that was the training in me that did that. Yeah. But, you know, obviously, a novel does take a lot longer than <laughs> an email advice or, or whatever yeah. Yeah. Um, and is a lot longer than, uh, yeah, I don't think I've ever written an 80,000-word <laughs> legal Oh, break. God.
0: Well, I hope not. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there are people who do it. I think the difference between the short form, this is what I say to try to break it down for writers to, I guess, demystify or make it more approachable is it's just staying on the same topic over time that's really the big difference instead of saying and so whether mm-hmm. you have in these this day and age too we have shorter attention spans regardless of that it's about showing up and staying on the same story so for writers you have to make things more interesting in law obviously you you can only work with the components you're given and or that you research, right? Mm, But it's it's about staying with it. It leads me, I guess that whole idea about quick turnaround time leads me to wonder what it was like for you and what your process was with writing the first draft and or editing as you go or not editing as you go, because you've got this beautiful balance, your education, which you'd already dipped your toe into creative writing and obviously a love of literature, but then mm. following this other part of the path, which writing is involved as part of many different professions. So mm. you're still using it, right? There is overlap, but in a different way when you're writing or when you started writing, when your daughter was four months old, how did you approach it? That's the same or different to what you had been doing in your career.
1: That's really interesting, and actually, I don't think I've thought about it like that before. But it is probably quite a similar process in that I think there's sort of like a maxim in law, which is that of you know, as to write something long is really quick, but to write something sort of pithy and useful actually takes a lot of time and a lot of drafts. And I think my approach to writing a bit of legal advice is to write a really messy, long first draft and then refine and refine and refine until it looks like no work's gone into it, but actually a huge amount of work's gone into it to make it as engaging and clear as possible. And actually that was probably my approach to writing the novel too, which is I wrote a really messy first draft where it all just poured out of me. And I didn't necessarily know where all the bits of the story were going. You know, I had some sort of, you know, plot points in mind and an ending in mind, but I really just discovered the story largely as I went along and I sort of just plugged away at it every day. Then I got to the end and had a really messy first draft. I mean, I tinkered with it a little bit as I went, but largely I just kept going. And particularly when I got to the sort of second half and just really wanted to get the story sort of out. And then did massive amounts of editing, really sort of, because, you know, I think when you work like that, you know, if you're making changes, then they impact the whole story. So you really have to tear it apart and put it back together. And so yeah, it was a process of just getting a getting the story out in a really clunky, messy way. And then going back in there and and cleaning it up, which I luckily I really enjoy editing. <laughs> oh,
0: that's amazing. Well, two things. One, so hopefully everybody listened, this is a person who has done the race to the end. And it sounds like you're what I would call a planter, which is plotting and pantsing. So you had a a skeleton sort of outline and apologies, everyone, if you can hear a dog, Uh, (laughs) because (laughs) I hear a dog and banging and that's just the world we're living in. But that you've got a rough idea. You said you kind of, you knew where you wanted it to go. You had an idea of certain points in the story, but then mostly you were just letting it flow out of you. Mm. With this story too. So your daughter was four months old. I know that A lot of us who have written things have started dreaming about stories and maybe some point stick or maybe some things. Do you think you were actually formulating some of it beforehand? I have a whole theory around this, but I'm trying to think about how much of the writing process for you maybe had actually been going on inside right so deeper down or back in the in the subconscious mind potentially for years both as you're reading but as you're writing other little creative things that you're sort of bringing with you so by the time you're getting to that point where you got two i guess moments a day depending on how well and then if anything is consistent with children it is that they are inconsistent and that once they get a routine yeah. then then they go through a massive milestone and then their routine changes and everything that you were doing. So whatever routine you've got set up, mom, is only gonna be okay for this amount of time. <laughs> yeah. Then yeah, you're gonna have to get change, you, right? Yeah, you're gonna have to do the next one. But you had like these two little pockets of writing time for everything to to sort of come out. I'm really curious how. E- how easily, so you gave yourself permission to make it be messy and clunky, but when you yeah. talk about it flowing out, did it feel very easy? Like you just had more words than, than you knew that you would needed. You knew you'd be cutting back or what did it actually feel like when you
1: were sitting down to those writing sessions? I think it depended. It was, it was all the things, you know, I, I set myself a word target and then I think I even broke it down into 150 word or 300 word chunks that I could cross as I went to get that dopamine hit. I think I stole that from one of Sally Hepworth's Instagram stories. And some days, particularly if I was writing, you know, a scene that I was really looking forward to writing, you know, a party scene or a, a, a scene in a a great location you know I would look forward to that and yeah sometimes the word count would hit it so quickly and I just want to keep going Mm. and then other days it was a real slog you know because because I didn't know where to go or because I was writing something like a, a scene that had a lot of conflict in it you know that or, or I was putting my my character Zoe through something that mm. was tough. And so sometimes it would be really hard going. And it's also, I think, you know, like anything, you look back with slightly rose-colored glasses. So yeah. it would probably be really easy to say, oh, no, it was, it was a beautiful experience and it just flowed <laughs> out of me. But of course it wasn't. Like yeah. it was, you know, some days it feels like. I remember just one day walking around and just sort of tearing my hair out going, she just doesn't want anything you know (laughs) my character doesn't want anything you know because I was sort of you know focused on that that day and then Mm you work through it and then you forget that that was hard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's really interesting too, that you're talking about something that I think a lot of writers may experience and some of them are conscious of it and some not so conscious is there is transference and there should be right between yourself and your character, even if your character is not living the life you live, you're imbuing them with certain qualities. And it's why maybe we have alter egos in stories as well to let us, you know, act out certain things that we would never do, whether we've made that our our protagonist or not when you're in it. So you're so right when you say some days it would be a hard slog, maybe because Zoe was going to be going through something hard. And our own inclination as humans is to avoid pain. Obviously, <laughs> um, of course. Plus, yes, anyway, <laughs> unless we're like sadists or whatever, but even <laughs> emotionally, and even if we know it's make believe supposedly, but I believe that fiction is just truth. That's more accessible to more people mm-hmm. because we can get closer. Even if we're conscious of the fact that it's fiction, it can be hard to be present during, like you said, conflict. So if she's having a fight, And you've got scenes in this book that are so beautiful. When you talked about being a a rom-com lover and even, you know, living in the UK, I definitely had, not in every way, but there were definite Bridget Jones vibes from Mm -hmm. some of the things that she did. Like when you, and this is any good protagonist, I think, as a reader, we know where they should go. Probably as a writer, you know where she should go and she's not doing it you know, resistance. And and yeah, like your frustration, she doesn't want anything. And you've got these amazing characters and Will is, is gorgeous, you know, prickly at the start and I love the dimension you've put in to the characters, but it is getting her to that place where you know she has to go through those hard things to get to the other side.
1: Yeah, and I think that that is why I love romantic comedies because it isn't at all about a girl getting a guy. I mean, of course it is. You know, that's why it's (laughs) got the romance element, but that's not why we're interested in it. We're interested in seeing a woman, it's normally a woman, I guess, you know, deal with something that is stopping her from living her best life. And it's really about them finding that steeliness within them, which is already there. And them searching and, and finally tackling it head on, I think is, is the bit that keeps readers coming back to those books because that's, I guess the journey that so many of us are on, you yeah. know, trying to untangle the stories we tell ourselves. So, yeah, no, that is the bit that I find most interesting about this genre.
0: Well, it's relatable, right? You know, we, and again, it's that difference between externally, it's always easy to see somebody else's challenge potentially or where they're going wrong. Whereas if you're living it, you've come to that point with all these preconceived notions. So the big one being if they would just have an open, honest conversation, that's what we say. But we don't, we don't, we tell stories where you talk about storytelling. We tell stories in our everyday life all throughout every sort of interaction. Right. So you had to tackle, did you, this makes an interesting question to me. Did you know what Zoe's main challenge was going to be? Like where she started the story versus where she was going to end. And what was her revelation to herself? The, the place I've really been going wrong. Yeah. Is X. Like, did you know, even though she obviously was not willing to look at it pretty much the whole time,
1: even to the point yeah, where it was like, I- come on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I did. And I think that, you know, this is a story about a woman who has chosen to be a mom on her own and she wants to do life really independently. The only person that she wants to rely on is herself. But because of the childcare drought and because she needs to go back to work, she's in a situation in her life where she literally cannot do all the things on her own. So she has to rely on someone and will the next door neighbour for her is that safe person because she's like there is no way you know like we're going to have a transactional relationship Mm -hmm. you know it's the safest way that she can rely on someone and 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 I think that I really knew that in the context of this story what Zoe kind of had to get come to terms with is that there is a difference between independence and you know having a village you know and that relying on people is something that we have to do, you know, that we all have to be there for each other. And you can't do, you know, all the great things in life on your own. It's just, you know, and I think that in a world where we are often expected to do that a lot, a lot, you know, you know, as a parent like I've experienced and observed that there is a lot that you're meant to do without a lot of help and do really well and and I think that's where a lot of people are are falling in a bit of a heap because you know the village is as it might have existed in the past just isn't there and we're sort of looking around to work out you know how we are the parent and the employee and the friend and all the things that we're meant to be and and I think that if this book is Thing it's a impassioned argument for a village and for yeah. not not doing things on your own for being there for other people and for letting people be there for you and I think I was very aware that that was Zoe's journey to get to the place where she had her village and was comfortable with her village yeah well and that I mean, was showing up to too
0: yeah well I love that it sort of rippled out and you've got really again for me, this sort of nuance that for readers, you know, so some readers will want to go into a rom com or any book and just be entertained and take it for that. I don't want to say super surface level, but just stay strictly with the plot. And that's cute. Mm -hmm. And I like that. And it's what I went in expecting. I know that in the end, it's going to kind of work out in one way or another. I'll be happy with the ending and others. And I think that this is the majority of readers are actually looking for something that's more reflective of their life. And they want nuance, which is to say everything overall works out, but maybe not exactly as you thought. And you've got the supporting cast of characters are also going through their own battles, especially like with her sister and her mother, Mm -hmm. bringing in this idea of, to your point about one of the massive themes, what is independence really? And I think that part of the challenge with most stories that we're actually looking at is the willingness to be vulnerable. I mean, I would say, I don't know, close to 100%. There is, that's a massive component. If people are willing to get vulnerable, they're more likely to get what they need. Well, Mm -hmm. why? Because one of the things is to challenge this idea. And the village is a perfect example. We live in a modern society in the Western world anyway, where it's challenging, even with multi-generations living in proximity, we still have a hard time asking or even with friends. So it's not necessarily that the village isn't there. It is different than it used to be because there isn't forced proximal living, but it's hard even if they're close, which is wild to me. So it's a a sort of a, it's a mindset. Where did we grow up as little girls thinking? If you want a career, now it's not even one. Like you've got to go out and have a job because it's expensive <laughs> to pay for things. <laughs> so making that leap and Zoe's doing it, I, th- I see multiple reasons she's doing it. So it's not just the financial or the practical there's the emotional drive that you have underneath it all that started way before. And that's where you bring in her sister and her mom to help reflect, yeah. oh, this, this stuff's been going on. Even with her last relationship before it ended, there was a reason. You, you really hit us near the end where if we didn't already get it, we know this is yeah, a baby guess, problem.
1: Yeah. And I'm glad that that's what you took away. Um, that's, that's <laughs> fantastic because yeah, I was so interested in having lots of different female characters with different lives in mm. the story, because I think that's exactly it. It's, it's the lack of wanting to show the vulnerability and mm. the lack perfect. And I think it manifests in all the different women's lives really differently, you know, yes. her sister, it, Wanting to be like showing that she's got it all together, that she is this, you know, perfect partner at the law firm, that she is this perfect mother and wife, and that she's able to juggle it all. There's no cracks. I've got it, except obviously. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. her, her best friend, it's, you know, she's so confident that motherhood is going to become come really easily to her and she's not worried about it at all and then when it sort of knocks her sideways a bit she's even though she is sort of a character that is really open with her emotions and you know seems like the kind of person that is you know would be really relaxed about that actually she is all she also withdraws because life has hit her in a way differently to what she expected it would so I'm glad that you know, you took that away from it because I was really interested in, yeah, how as women were expected to just have, have it all together. And often we just don't. And
0: well, it's, um, it's, you've got multiple versions of, or I shouldn't say versions, but I would say different reflections of the way that it can manifest this drive to tell. I told a story. So even like with her best friend, and sometimes it's not just that we're telling others the story we're telling ourselves The story. I mean, I have this experience as well with with my first marriage. We tell a story, and then we feel like, okay, well, I've locked that in. I have to. That's what I'm living now. Sort of like that adage, you know, you made your bed, you've got to lie in it. And but you're taking it to this other level, and with a greater theme around specifically women. And so I'm a proponent of it, and women who are in caring positions, because I even saw it with her boss has her own way of, I have got to live the story that I have projected. And it's not that they're bad, either the story or the woman, it's just that they are not, I don't know, attainable right? We can't live a story we've made up, whether it, some of it's influenced by the external world. And definitely that comes into play as well. You go a lot into these things. And look, my youngest is 10. So I'm not super close, but I also don't feel super far away. <laughs> Although with sleep, I'm good. I'm good yeah. on the sleep front. And I'm very happy, but we were talking. That's before, reassuring to know that Yeah. That well, also <laughs> we'd said uh we rescheduled this this podcast podcast because it's mothering things that come up that you don't intend. And and so schedules can can go off. And that happens all the time. It's actually directly related to your story, right? It was
1: very on brand. And I think it was about, yeah, so, and thank you for rescheduling it, but (laughs) I, I think it was about a month after the book came out. And I'd been doing such exciting things, you know, I'd been to lots of events and bookstores and been up to Sydney. And then I just wake up one morning and I've been hit with mastitis. And wow. overnight, I, uh, you know, I've got every flu symptom and I'm straight on, you know, the antibiotics and I can't do anything but rest for a few days. And wow. you know, that, I mean, it's the, that that's very on brand for a book. <laughs> that literally has a romantic scene centered around a gastro outbreak. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yes, exactly. um, I don't know how you did it, but you managed <laughs> to, you know why? Because it hit, it hit the part for anyone who's been through gastro, even those of us who are in relationships. And I should say it's obviously Zoe is not you, you have a partner. You didn't just decide to, you know, so she's not a direct reflection of you, but you've got scenes that are clearly from a woman who has been through hard things. And then imagined (laughs) if I were single, like, what would I love? Because Will does stuff that's like, I mean, this is where you have to say, I'm sure that they exist, but they're still in the minority. They're still like the supermodels of the world in the ways (laughs) that he actually comes to support her. It's like, that's why he's a dreamboat, if I'm honest. Like, I don't even feel like I'm locked in now that I finished the book a little while ago. I don't even know if I know what he looks like. I fill that in based on what I would like him to look like. But I can never forget the dreaminess of the way in which. He just shows up and remains there, and it's like, how can I get that neighbor? I mean, I'm married, happily married, so I don't don't want that part. But just yeah,
1: I mean, look, I gave Will a lot of qualities that I find really sexy. (laughs) So you know, he's smart, he's driven, he's got a sort of very dry slightly judgy weird. I actually <laughs> do think that there's something in exactly what you were saying, which he's almost the opposite of weaponized incompetence, right? Yes. He's like weaponized confidence. He, when he starts looking after Zoe's daughter, he literally has never held a baby. He knows yeah. nothing about what to do, but he's the kind of guy that if he is going to do something, he is going to do it to the best level that is possible. Oh my god, I love that. You know, yeah. You know, he becomes a, an expert on looking after this baby and and in the process it learns that he can gain a lot from that experience mm. of, you know, slowing down, looking at the world through the eyes of a baby, of sort of rediscovering the things that give you joy just because they do, not because they're serving any broader purpose. And, you know, he sort of reconnects to himself through that experience. But yeah, I do think that, I don't know what it says about the fact that there's so many so much of the feedback I've had is, yeah, you know, it's it's Will yes, <laughs> stepping into the breach and being a really competent, caring character that's so sexy.
0: Because it, well, maybe too, because it's challenging, just like you saying through all of these different female characters that what we're setting ourselves up for is more pain unnecessarily, if we were just as honest as we could be about needing help and asking for it, which is the hardest thing. And he comes in being asked, but in a very, I don't want to say clinical isn't the right way, but very clean way. Like this is just transactional. Yeah, we're just doing this, but he steps up in all of these ways and he's not thrown by the grossness of life. Being a woman means you have to get used to certain things. Even before kids, we experience things that men usually do not internally. So therefore, they're not seen. Almost everything about being a woman feels very like it's supposed to be hidden and internalize.
1: Yeah, playback about that?
0: Um, oh, is there? Yeah. Well, yeah. I love playback. I have to go watch <laughs> the whole series again. Yeah, but it is. It's like this very hidden thing, and he doesn't balk at the stuff that anybody we imagine anybody. So exactly, like you said, a weaponized competence and not saying, oh, well, this is so gross. Just gastro, the word, I don't know, why. <laughs> sort of synonymous <laughs> I, with discussing yucky stuff.
1: And I do think too, that something that I really wanted to get into was that I think that we're at this amazing turning point at the moment where you know companies are giving a lot of their yes. leave, leave that is significant. And will give them the opportunity to spend a decent chunk of time being, you know, the parent to their kid for, you know, often as the primary carer. I, I think that there's, you know, a real sort of moment and opportunity for change here, which is that I think there's a lot of men that do want to take on a lot more of that responsibility and time with their kids. And yeah. we just haven't really got there as a society, but there's just gradually, we are seeing a bit of a a, a point now where, you know, we men can take parental leave, where they can have some flexible working arrangements. And I, I, you know, I don't think we're as fully there as as we can get. Um, And I don't think it's the norm. And I think that, you know, there's still a lot of barriers to come down, but I think that there can be so much that guys can take out of, you know, having a more hands. I mean, grossness aside, like yeah. There's a, well, you know what? There's a golden stuff too, and I think right. that yeah, hopefully that we're kind of heading towards a world where that you know women can be more supported and men can um, have the option to have more time at at home. It's it's funny because it's
0: those experiences, and even if it's not, you know, sickness necessarily, and all the things that come with it that time with them that is usually banal and the day to day, but also challenging when someone is sick or hurt, and they can be cared for by the male figure in their life that leads to more connection. You know, you see it in romantic relationships too. the the time where people connect is when they've gone through something hard. Now, hard doesn't have to be on a monumental scale. It can just be these moments, especially with a child where the child is unsure. And it's really heart clenching for a lot of moms I know because it's why we would choose for us to be sick rather than the child because the child doesn't know what the heck is going on. And so, even if it doesn't seem very serious, the kid doesn't know it's not serious. They just know you know, this, what's happening. So if more men, there are two things, just like you've got in the book, women breaking down this barrier of now this perceived idea, I've got to do it all perfectly and I've got to have it all together and there is no village. So I'm going to be the village and that'll be fine. It'll just be a little Island of us. It's all good totally not practical or doable in modern life. Same with men. And I love that you said, you know, there would be a lot of men who who want to do this, but I think Mm -hmm. we're battling both them feeling like they can say that they want to, and it's not some sort of uh, reflection of their role as men or masculinity or anything, but also because if they could show up and be that support, they're going to get the benefit of being the person the kid really wants to be with in this particular thing. So my daughter, for example, will have certain things she'll come to me for and other things she'll go to her dad for. And both of yeah. them have an emotional support component, which I think is really important. And I think men are missing out if they're not taking advantage of the parental leave sort of changes.
1: Yeah, and and just on a purely like nuts and bolts level, um, my husband took 4 months of parental leave that his company mm. gave him with both our kids now, and with our our first our daughter I truly think that I could not have written this book if he hadn't done that, not because I wrote it when he was on leave, but because (laughs) those four months meant that we both knew how to equally take care of our daughter. We both learned, we knew nothing. And by the end of that time, we both knew that whatever we needed to, to get through the day. And so that, that when I did have a little chunk of time that I could get back to my computer and, and, and get on with the story, I knew that like I wasn't having to do a handover or anything. Yes, I knew yes, he was qualified in looking after our baby daughter because he'd yeah. been there in the trenches. And yes. I think, it, um, even though I then was on leave for sort of that the rest of the year, I had a real partner in sharing the mental mm. load, and it gave me that mental freedom to do this project. And and I think that I yeah, I feel really, really lucky that I had that. Yeah. Well, again, a benefit to him,
0: but to you again, the mental load being a massive one and this sort of segues us back to maybe the last thing we'll talk about, but you said you loved editing and that's great. It's amazing that you had a partner that when you did then for the next stage, because no bones about it, Editing is maybe the most important next stage. And it's not just a singular, like, oh, I'll just take just take a few months and do that. I mean, the number the of edits. Prices, yeah. yeah, it's just, but it's getting to that point where then you feel you can share it. And because you were so practiced at taking something that whether other people outside of you would have thought, oh, no, that first draft was great or way better than I could do. It doesn't matter for you. You knew you put whatever you had into it. I got it to whatever done looks like for this version. So it's not like baking. It's not like you put the cake in and then it's got to be good enough coming out. It's like, it could look like hot mess even coming out of putting everything together.
1: (laughs) Yeah. And I think that novel writing is a team sport, you know, Mm. it's... I had an amazing editor who gave me a manuscript assessment that helped me then write another draft that I, I couldn't have written without that. I had uh-huh. a brilliant editor and publisher at HarperCollins whose notes were just, you know, so helpful. And and I, I think that without that feedback, I just couldn't have written the story that I wrote. I, mm-hmm. I think that um, editing is just so much part of the process and to get brilliant feedback that you that, that then makes you push yourself and 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 really sort of elevates what you can do it's just mm. such a lucky position to be in
0: did you have beta readers before you'd gone or did you go straight from writing and then doing your first and i say first with air quotes because it could be multiple edits yourself but we just call it first before you went to the manuscript assessment or how did Take me through that little process for the next. Part yeah, of your-
1: so I did a few rounds of edits on my own before it went to yeah. a manuscript assessor. I got it as far as I could get. Yeah. Um. In terms of beta readers, I had done an online creative writing course and just clicked with another. Uh, woman on the course, Michelle, who I've never met in real life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she lives on the other side of the world, but we just found each other's writing funny. Amazing. <laughs> and so we, we stayed in touch after the course finished and shared bits of what we were working on, and so she gave me some feedback on early drafts. And then I had one or two friends that would r- sort of give feedback on a chapter or two, which was so useful. But not a lot of readers, beta readers, in the sense of like reading the entire story and giving oh, that's sort clever. of yeah, yeah.
0: That's interesting. I just think too, it's a good example talking about that editing piece beforehand, which leads into another podcast that I'm starting. So I'm not going to announce it (laughs) because I need another podcast, but I will, I will tap you on the shoulder for that one too, because I'm really curious to hear about the next stages of your journey, but I love that you're sharing that even when it comes to getting feedback, that the way you did it, was the way you did it and not the way that everyone does it so that there's no one path to writing your work in the first place. And then there's no one path for what's the best way to do your edit, right? So some people might dive into getting uh, an edit, like a manuscript assessment or a structural edit early, and then they will go through it. And then they might give it to beta readers and they might give out their whole manuscript. I loved hearing that you had different ways of doing it. And hopefully that made you feel like you were making progress, but also you were keeping this, and I hate to say the term book baby, but this (laughs) project of your own in a place that felt good because sometimes putting stuff out wholesale to too many people without being discerning and asking for editorial feedback that's actually can lead to something that can lead to many more tears, right? And that's what we don't want. We never want a writer to stop altogether because they just throw up their hands, both emotionally and maybe physically. (laughs) They never mind. I
1: think think that's real wisdom in that. I haven't sort of thought about it in those terms, but I think I'd done a, Jenny Colgan was the author that ran this this class that I did online. And I think one of her bits of advice was you get the same physiological kind of hit of dopamine. From telling people that you're writing or telling people about your idea or, yeah, sharing something for people to give feedback as you do from actually writing. And Mm. so, like, make sure it's the writing that you're getting that from. You know, don't otherwise you can get complacent just talking about what you're going to do as you would just sitting down and doing it. So, that really rang true for me. And so, I've, yeah, tried to just focus on doing the thing. Instead of talking about it
0: or engaging
1: lots of people
0: to read the whole thing, which might stop you. I love that, getting the dopamine
1: from the actual doing yourself and staying with it. Yeah. And obviously, there's absolutely a place for other people. I couldn't have written this book without other people. Just, I guess, trying to be really thoughtful about when those points are. That's it. That thoughtfulness. And like I say, being discerning about the who and
0: and the what, like in your case, sometimes giving out specific chapters. And then I'm guessing when you give out those chapters, it, you could have been directive, but getting specific types of feedback, like this is what I want to know when you read this, what what's your overall feedback, but sometimes to possibly saying, oh, did you notice this or what happened? It helps you retain that project for yourself rather than mm-hmm. having too many, I would say too many cooks in the kitchen. You don't want it at that stage because by the way, once you get your manuscript, if you're going for traditional publishing, once it's acquired, you're gonna, <laughs> you're gonna do some more, some more yeah. editing, even if they absolutely love it, which they do, it will be edited again by a totally fresh set Mm -hmm. of eyes structurally before it even goes to the copy edit. So rather than get your head all turned around and your story sounding different from the get-go, getting it to a place good enough, right? Where it's really reflective enough of what that story was you'd originally started out wanting to share with the themes you wanted to share. I actually think it's often that that editorial process you would have had with your editor at HarperCollins as well that helps pluck the strings of that nuance we're talking about, you know, or clarify certain things. So overall it's the cake and they're helping you really take out any ingredient you didn't need and decorate it. So it makes that massive impact rather than just like, it's a beautiful plain cake. They're helping yes. you ice it and decorate it. So no, people I really
1: get that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's exactly. Yeah, they helped turn my my misshapen, <laughs> <laughs> like, beautiful wedding cake. <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, like I nailed it. But in this case, you really did nail it. And I guess this makes a beautiful place to end today. I do recommend everyone go out and get this book, The Love Contract. It was really, even though, like I said, I'm a few years past being in the midst of all of it. It. Brought me back in certain ways with beautiful (laughs) memories. And in others, like, oh, I'm so glad I'm past that particular (laughs) stage of challenge, but just a really great rom com and a dynamic while also bringing to the fore some really important themes that are getting delivered and making you think as you go about your day and sort of larger society. Like, that's always to me really impressive if you can bring things up that are much deeper but that you've got it in this container that's just a really delightful, sexy rom-com. Not overly, but just the right amount I found of all of those romantic components. But really, we're all just looking at Zoe's journey. And yeah, I loved it. So everyone go out and buy it. Thanks so much for chatting with us today, Steph. Thanks for having me. I've had a great time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Writers Talking. Join us next time for more Writers in Conversation as we delve into the writers' process, their passions, and a little bit about their books. Don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast player and follow us on Instagram at writers underscore talking underscore podcast.